you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to Exodus chapter 33. Got my laptop because my iPad was dead this morning. Sorry about that. That should work just the same. But I'm I'm turning uh, again to Exodus chapter 33, and we'll be uh, beginning in verse 18 and moving on through to chapter 34, verse 9. Uh, But just before we we read this passage, I want to remind you uh, where we've come from. At this point, God has graciously chosen to redeem the nation of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. He has brought them out. Uh, They're in the wilderness, and and at Mount Sinai, God comes down in his blazing glory uh, as a a consuming fire on the mountain, and he gives them the law, what we uh, might think of as the law of Moses or the old covenant. But... Just as soon as God gave Israel the law and they accepted it and were brought into this covenant, the Israelites blatantly broke the law, the, the golden calf of Exodus chapter 32. And so uh, when we're, as we come to Exodus 33, Moses has now interceded for the people of Israel to protect them from God's wrath and also to assure that God would remain with them and lead them to the promised land personally. And so what's amazing, and I want you to uh, get this, is uh, these verses that we're about to read come directly after God answered Moses' prayer uh, of intercession, agreeing to all that Moses asked for. Okay, I won't destroy Israel. Okay, my presence will remain with you. I will lead you to the promised land and give it to you. Uh, All these things. So God has answered all of Moses' requests, and that happened in verse 17, and now we pick up here in verse 18, if you want to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, uh, or just listen to my voice. Verse 18, here's how Moses responds. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face, shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. Uh, Yes, stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft or a large crack of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So we, we move now to Exodus 34. The only thing that has happened in between here, uh, where I'll pick up in verse 5, uh, ch- chapter 34, verse 5, is God has told Moses, come back tomorrow, bring new tablets. Because Moses had broken the old tablets that the law had been written on. And so here's what happens. Moses goes back up, and verse 5, we pick up. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but 
who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. You have just heard what I now believe to be one of the greatest prayers you could possibly ever pray. I have prayed it many, many times this week uh, while studying this passage. I plan to hold on to that, and I want to highly encourage you to begin praying that prayer of Moses. Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And again, I mentioned before, like God has already answered Moses' temporal requests. Don't destroy them. Stay, stay with us. Take us to get to the promised land. Moses already has the blessings. Moses already has uh, the, the, the earthly things that he might desire. And yet he lifts up this most amazing of requests to God. Please show me your glory. He is not content merely with the gifts. He wants the giver himself. And so I would encourage you, friends, this, for this to become your new prayer or add it into your prayers. God, please show me your glory. This week as I uh, studied this passage, I was just thinking about the profundity, the, the weightiness of this prayer to God. Please show me your glory. Because when I think about humans and our relation to God, we were made to behold, to bask in, to relish in the glory of God. We were made, we were created to do that. We were created to see his glory and to worship him, to trust him, to obey him, and to find our deep joy and satisfaction in him. But as we all know, we do not naturally do this as humans now. We have uh, with Adam fallen, we have received, inherited Adam's sin nature. And so we are all, I would say, uh, born exchanging the glory of God, preferring other things over the glory of God. We pursue those things rather than God. And so when I think about the Christian life or any human life, this prayer is so beautiful. God, please show me your glory. Our, our, our greatest struggle is that of sin, which separates us from God. And sin is, at its core, exchanging the glory of God, preferring something over God. And it is only when we see the all-surpassing glory of God that we are able to cast off sin. When I think about the worship of God, what we were created to do, when I think about uh, living for God, living for his praise and his renown, the Bible makes it very clear that these are things that cannot happen by us just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, by, by making a bunch of laws and rules and, and morals and, and just working so hard. We cannot accomplish true godliness. We cannot accomplish true worship in our lives. These are things that only happen 
as we behold the glory of the Lord. They will not happen otherwise. And so it is with, with everything that we could desire. I mean, that's what you have. Casting off sin, becoming more like God in our characteristics, in our, in our attitudes, in our actions. Like, that's all of life, right? It's all of life in relation to God, yes, but it's also all of life in relation to others. Our relationships with others, our relationship with our work, our relationship with ourselves. All of these things are influenced either negatively or positively based on whether or not we see, we behold, we love, we treasure the glory of God. Now, after reading a text like this uh, in Exodus chapter 33, um, you might say, well, that's all neat, and that sounds like a tremendous thing to experience, to see the glory of God to, to, to fall in worship like Moses did, to trust in, in God in all these ways and become more like him. That sounds amazing, but I'm not Moses. I, I, you know, you might say, I've never seen physically the glory of God. I've never had God pass by me in all his glory and goodness. And so you might wonder, you know, what, what hope do I have if, if all of life and all of the Christian life flow from seeing, beholding, loving, treasuring the glory of God, and yet I cannot see him. God doesn't reveal his glory to us the way he did to Moses. Then what hope do I have? And so this is where I want to begin today. As we approach this text, we see something that we say, wow, that, that was a, a once-in-a-lifetime thing, once-in-history type of thing that God passes by a mortal human, allowing him to see the glory of God. But here is what I want to pound into your minds today, and I think it is what uh, Moses actually goes to great lengths uh, to, to show us today, is this. You want to see God's glory? You want to be changed by him? You want to be filled with worship? You want to be used by him? Number one, God's glory is not what he looks like, but what he is like. If, if you're waiting for God to, to say, okay, sure, I will show you my glory, I will make my glory to physically pass by you, then you are waiting in vain. There is no reason to wait for those things in order to see the glory of God because the glory of God is not what he looks like, but what he is like. His nature, his attributes, his actions. This is the glory of God not some theophany, not some physical manifestation of God's glory. I could, by the way, just kind of knock this out of the way and say God is spirit. Uh, the, the gospel of John tells us that God is spirit. Therefore, God in all his glory does not normally have a physical manifestation. Like uh, before creation, there wouldn't have even been creatures to see God, and God is spirit forevermore and all eternity past and so like to even say to see God to see his glory um, is kind of missing the point of of how big and how great and glorious God is to bring him down to creaturely level God is glorious in and of himself it is what he is like not what he looks like but but I, I want to kind of just kind of quiz you on this a little bit uh, without going back and reading the whole thing um, how much attention does Moses give 
to physically seeing God in this text. I mean, this is, again, one of the most amazing things to happen in all of Scripture, that God physically takes on a a manifestation of his glory and passes by Moses. How much does Moses describe what God looked like, what he saw? I mean, it's basically not there. What we actually see in the text is what Moses does not get to see, how he will be restricted in seeing God. Uh, Look at it again in verses 20 to 23. God said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Blanket statement. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft, a large crack of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. I don't want to take away from how amazing this is, but isn't it a little bit anticlimactic? Like, God, please let me see your glory. Okay, Moses, you'll get to see my glory. What's going to happen is you're not going to see my face because no one can see me and live. I'm going to put you in a rock, then I'm going to cover you. I'm going to pass by, and just before I pass out of uh, field of view, out of vision, then I'll remove my hand and you can just kind of see my back a little bit. I mean, that's, that's somewhat anticlimactic. Like, you know, what, what, I thought this was going to be like this amazing God in his blazing fire. And, but that's not the focus that, of what happens here. God says, literally, you will only see my back after I have already passed by you. And so you have to wonder, well, did God actually answer Moses' prayer? Did he actually show him his glory like he said he would? Did did Moses leave this scene disappointed and disillusioned with God? He didn't see the physical manifestation the way he wanted to. Well, I'll just show you from Moses, again, uh, verse 8. When Moses, after this happens, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses is humbled and he is filled with overflowing worship because God's glory did pass by, and God did reveal his glory to Moses to a greater degree than had ever been revealed up to this time in history. Remember, God's glory is not what he looks like, but what he is like. And so God actually does reveal his glory to Moses. And we see that uh, in, in verses 18 and 19, for instance, he says, Please show, you, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And, so there's a physical manifestation that, that, that will be there. You'll, I'll cover you. You'll see a glimpse of my back. And I will proclaim before you my name. I'll actually just pause there for a moment. God's not talking about his personal identifier, although he does proclaim his own name, Yahweh. The Lord, you have in all caps in your Bibles. Um, but a name isn't just a personal identifier. Uh, the way that the word name is used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and almost always when it's talking about God, is, is not a personal identification, but identity. Who he is, what he is like. I will proclaim my identity before you. I will proclaim before you 
what I am like at my essence. And so we, we actually see it uh, three times uh, in, in ver- chapter 34. The, I, I will do this. I will uh, pass before you and I will proclaim. Then the Lord proclaimed. And then the Lord proclaimed. Like this, it's the proclamation. The, the word is actually the greater revelation than what Moses could see with his eyes. The glory of God is not something that we should, should be looking for with the eyes of our physical heads, but with the eyes of our hearts. And this is something you don't have to be Moses to do, right? You don't have to be Moses uh, to see the glory of God with the eyes of your hearts. I think about uh, Paul says in Ephesians, oh man, what is it, one eighteen maybe, that, that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, like that, you're, that they'd be opened, that there would be light, that you would see God, that there would be knowledge and revelation, he says there in Ephesians. This is what we need. This is that, how we get to that glory of God is not by seeing with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our hearts. And this is something we all can do. And so I, I kind of want to jump to the end before we get there. God's word contains the greatest revelation of his glory that, that we can see today. And, and what's amazing is Moses, in all his life, would have only known the first five books because he wrote them. He had five books of the knowledge of God's glory, and he's bowing down in worship. He's transformed. He'll later be reflecting the glory of God. And I say to us, we have 66 books of God's glory being revealed to us, of God proclaiming his name, his attributes, what he is like. Now, I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm encouraging you right now that, that this can become your new prayer. God, please show me your glory. Show me what you're like. Show me how awesome and amazing and beautiful you are. But there's going to be something that, that happens as you start digging in God's word. You're, you're prayerfully digging in God's word saying, I want to see your glory. Show it to me in your word. There are going to be things about God that make you uncomfortable. There are going to be things about God that, that you might even be uh, repulsed by when you first see them. I, I don't want to go into listing a bunch of examples. And so he, here's something that you need to recognize and that, that we'll, we'll see here uh, in the text. Is that, number one, you don't need to be afraid when you go to God's word. Uh, that, that you will see something bad about him. And, and number two... Keep looking until you see the goodness, until you see the beauty of God's glory. And that is because of this. And I'll I'll show you in the text in just a moment. Everything about God is glorious and good. I cannot say that about myself. I cannot say that about anyone I know. I cannot say that about any world system or any created thing. I can't say that they are altogether glorious and good in every aspect, in every respect, and as deep as I might dig. But everything about God is both glorious, that is weighty and valuable, 
but everything about God is also good. That is, it is pure and upright and beautiful. Everything about God. I want to show you this from our text. Exodus uh, 33, this is uh, verses 18 to 22. I I just want to show you the, the interchange between that word glory and goodness and God, I, that you might say. And I kind of lined them all up on that left side of the screen and I highlighted them in yellow so you can see how the, these words are just kind of used synonymously. Verse uh, 18 of chapter 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. So he, he's directly, explicitly asking to see God's glory. Verse 19, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So that's God now saying, okay, you've asked for to see my glory. Sure, yeah, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Like it's almost like God doesn't even think about that he changed the words. Then in the very next verse, verse 22, he's explaining how this is going to take place. He says, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. So God's now using the word glory to speak of his goodness and his goodness of his glory. I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. That is, all of who I am, I'm putting on display. Not that your mind could comprehend it in in a million existences, but I will be passing by and it will be my glory that passes by and it will be full goodness that passes by everything about God is glorious and good I I love how the psalmist puts it in uh, Psalm 119 verse 68 it's there at the bottom of your screen the psalmist says of God you are good and do good that pretty much covers everything right like everything about you is good and everything that you do is good every attribute of yours is perfect and pure and lovely and every act that you do is perfect and pure and lovely you are good and do good and so i'm telling you right now your flesh and your finite mind is not going to immediately appreciate everything about god that you see in his word but it is not the deficiency of god it is the deficiency of our our fallen minds And and so I would encourage you, don't be afraid to go to God's word that, oh, I might see something unsavory about God. It's not there because there is nothing, nothing unsavory about God. And I would even tell you, don't be worried about having your faith thrown off because I can guarantee you, if you keep on pushing, if you keep on looking, if you keep praying to God, please show me your glory, he will show it. I've, uh, I've told several of you this story, um, I remember when I was first like digging into theology, uh, you know, like God, God had grabbed a hold of my heart and, I, and I, I wanted it. I wasn't necessarily saying, please show me your glory, but I was looking for it. And so I was digging into theology and I was studying and I, I remember it was in the book of Romans. But anyway, I'm studying and I saw something about God that I was just like, oh, no, I must be like, I'm misunderstanding that because surely God is not like that. Surely God does not do that. And then, uh, so I continue studying, I continue reading more. (gasps) There it is again, like even more explicitly. God, God, it's saying that God is like this and that God does this thing. And and I remember I was like, it it really threw me off. 
uh, and I was like nervous about going into a tailspin because I'm like, God has just reclaim my heart. I'm, I'm like just now gaining some momentum and following him and loving him and worshiping and living for him. And now I see this, what looks to me to be a blotch on his character. And it, but I remember that the anchor for me was knowing that God is good, that everything about God is glorious and good. And so I would literally go running in my neighborhood late at night because I'd be like struggling <laughs> with this like anxiety. So it'd be an anxiety run and I would literally be running saying, praying to God, God, you're good. Help me to know you're good. And I would talk to him about this area. God, I see that the Bible says that you are this way and that you do these things. Like, I know you're good. Please help me to know you're good. And guess what? It was not immediate. It took continued prayer and it took continued digging in his word and uh, even talking with trusted Christian friends, you know, that I, I, I uh, know they ha- understand the depth of God to a greater degree. Uh, but I came to see this as one of the most beautiful aspects of God in the end. I mean, it, it, it's so far above my head, it, it still, you know, makes my, my mind spin. But I still see it as glorious, I still see it as good. And so I want to encourage you in that, that no matter what you see of God, it is always glorious, it is always good, even if it takes a moment for our minds to process it. Well, what might make you uncomfortable? <laughs> good question. You see up there, uh, let's see here. Dude, oh my goodness, what have I done? You don't see up there. I will just read it to you. Uh, you, got, you have it in your Bibles. Exodus 33, verse 19, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I I, I honestly don't feel like uh, having the whole sermon go this direction, but those that, that verse, God proclaiming his name, the Lord, that's Yahweh, I am, that's absolute existence, nothing else would exist without him. So he says that, then he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. That is the absolute sovereignty of God. Sovereignty meaning that he is the decision maker of the universe, and one of the decisions that God is, is, uh, has the right to make is that he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. And by implication, he will not whom he will not. And so again, you you might struggle with that, but I I would just say for all of us thinking about this, like how can I see the goodness here? What I don't think is amazing or or troubling or mind-boggling is that God can choose whether or not to be gracious to fallen sinners, it's that he ever chooses to be gracious to fallen sinners. I mean, that to me is what's mind-blowing, that Adam and Eve, on the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were explicitly told not to eat, they turn away from the glory of God, they take this uh, fruit that they believe will make them wise and make them become like God, they do this, and God does not immediately crush them that God does not immediately send them 
to the pit, to hell. And then, then you think about uh, all of human history since then. That there are any who are under God's grace and God's mercy is what I believe is amazing. The next uh, set of, of verses we might look he- at here is verses uh, 5 to 7 of 34. So Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. This is God proclaiming his name. Very good. It's on the screen again, if that's helpful for you. So here we have God actually proclaiming his name. The first time, that was just a, a precursor, an appetizer. Here, here's what God says to Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we'll pause there. You say, what's not to like about this God? Like, how how could my flesh possibly be repulsed by that? And and you're right. Like, this is amazingly beautiful. I want to say unbelievable, but we got to believe it (laughs) because the Bible says it. This is what God of, of perfect holiness and righteousness is like. He's a God who is merciful. He's not just do merciful. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. That means God does not have a trigger, uh, what is it, a hairline trigger? That's not right. doesn't matter. He doesn't have a short fuse uh, with, with us in our sin. It says God is abounding in, not just a little bit, but abounding in, overflowing with the stead, with steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love means unmovable. He sets his love on you, it's there. And then faithfulness, right? I mean, that that means he's trustworthy. If he says it, he will do it. There is no change in it. Then he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's basically the three categories of, of offending God listed right there. God lists it. I forgive iniquity, I forgive transgression, I forgive sin. And I'm not going to go into the details of, of what all those mean. But this is what God says, I, I forgive these things. I, I keep steadfast love, I'm faithful, I'm merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Until all of that I say, amen. What a good and glorious God. He does not have to show mercy. He does not have to show grace. You, you say, okay, again, what, what would make me uncomfortable The second half of of that verse, verse 7, so this is just trailing off of where we finished. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So you might say that in the previous verses, God put his love and mercy and grace on display But in that second half of of verse 7, God puts his glorious justice on display. That God as creator of the universe is also the judge of the universe. And he does not sweep sin under the celestial rug. He does not just act like it never happened. He cannot because he is perfectly just. 
And I, I, I just want to mention there, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. We, we, we covered that when we studied Exodus 20, verse 5. That's the second of the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and it makes more clear what that is talking about. Uh, but, but right now, we just see that God will by no means clear the guilty. And so I would say for some of us, we, 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 we got to there, the first half of verse 7, and we're like, yes, this is an amazing, glorious, and good God. And then we finish verse 7, and we say, oh, I don't know about that. That, that, that doesn't make God look too good in my eyes. I, I don't like that he just seems so unbending. And not only d- does it make God look bad, but it makes me feel quite bad about myself because I know that I have sinned. And so I assume that I am one of the guilty that God says he will by no means clear. So this, this makes us uncomfortable when we, when we read this about God. This is who he is and what he does. This is his name. This is his glory for us to behold. You say, well, how can this be good? How can this be good? How can this be a good way to think of God? And how can this be good for me? As I think about God and I think about one day standing before this God, knowing I have offended him. I mean, if God were to say that directly to your face in real time, and God, by the way, does say it directly to you in his word. But if God were to say that directly to your face, that that I am these ways, I'm merciful, gracious, slow to anger, steadfast love and faithfulness, but I will by no means clear the guilty. How would you respond in that moment? I think think, uh, the way Moses responds might help us to see how we should respond. And this is where I want to to point your attention next. 34 uh, verses 8 and 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, that's humility, and worshipped, that's worship. And then, then, then Moses says this, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses, by, by, by having the glory of God revealed to him, again, not necessarily what God looks like, but what he is like, leads Moses to deep humility, to worship, and to running to, casting himself and Israel on God's mercy. Pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. That is to say, I know we don't deserve it, I know that in and of ourselves, God, we are guilty. But I ask that you would pardon our sin. And and not only pardon us, let us off the hook. Take us for your inheritance. Let us be your people. You are God and let us enjoy you and worship you and everything else. And so we ask this question, how can Moses respond that way? How, How can Moses hear God Uh, at one time say, I will by no means clear the guilty, and then Moses say, please pardon our iniquity. Like, how could he do that? 
The answer is this, and it's going to sound confusing at first. The answer is this, Moses knew the gospel. Moses knew the good news. See, we often think of the gospel, the good news of a savior, of a sin-bearing savior. We think of that as a New Testament reality, but that's not true. It is completely an Old Testament reality. And, and you remember, Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis contains the fall, but it also contains God's promise, the good news of, of a Savior who would come. That's Genesis 3.15. You can, you can look it up. Genesis 3.15, God promises there will be one, uh, that, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head. Satan, in this sin problem that he introduced into this world, and, and Moses would have had more. He would have had, uh, when God gave Abraham a substitute that he could sacrifice rather than sacrificing his own son. And Moses would have had the Passover lamb that while all the Egyptians had their firstborn killed, the Israelites sacrificed the lamb and took the blood and put it on the, the, the doorposts and lintel of their, their homes. And God passed over their sin. They deserved it just as much as Egypt. And, and Moses would have had this sacrificial system that there, that there was atonement made at least symbolically through these animals that God would pass over sin. So he knew that there was a coming one who would deal with, with this sin problem. And he knew there was such a thing as vicarious atonement. That is, someone else taking the punishment that I deserve. And it was demonstrated again in the Passover lamb. It was demonstrated in the sacrificial system. And all of this made every aspect of God, not just the some parts, not just cherry picking, every aspect of God glorious to Moses to bow his head, to worship, and to cast himself on the mercy of God. And this is the final point I want to give you. The gospel most fully reveals God's glorious goodness. The, the, the gospel most fully reveals God's glorious good. And, and again, the gospel, I know that's a Christian-y word. The news that God can pardon the guilty reveals God's glorious goodness because God is just and he cannot sweep, sin, sweep our sin under the rug, but God is merciful. God is gracious. God is uh, one who gives steadfast love and faithfulness. And the way those two things come together is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Moses, by the way, I mean, he, he kind of has this foggy picture. He says, okay, God has just told me his name, but in his name are two things that seem contradictory. I forgive iniquity, sin, and transgression. I, I by no means clear the guilty. And it's just like, that's kind of confusing. And then and, but Moses has in the back of his head this gospel, this good news that I don't know what it's going to look like, but God is going to make a way for my sin to be covered, for my sin to be paid for. So I, I say that the, the gospel is not only a New Testament reality, but the glory of God, his glorious goodness, finds its apex, its peak, and its revelation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in him, all of God's glory is shown. I'll show you this just in a couple of ways. Uh, first, just Hebrews 1.3 sa says of Jesus, He is the radiance 
of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. You could say he perfectly carried God's name. He's the exact imprint of God's name. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And this Jesus, I just want to remind you though, like again, making sure we're all on the same page. He is one who was born of a woman, but there was no man involved, right? That's the virgin birth that, that uh, God the Holy Spirit made uh, Mary pregnant. And so there is a God-man that was born that first Christmas day. One who was fully God, yet had fully taken on human nature. That is who Jesus is and was. And this Jesus went around doing God-like things, living a perfect life and perfect uprightness, healing, doing many miracles and providing, showing that he is sovereign, showing all of his glory and goodness. But it all finds its apex in what we call the good news of the gospel. And I, I want to show you the way that Paul worded this because it brings Moses in to the picture, but it also has us in this passage. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm just going to pause there. All are guilty before God and are justified, he says, are justified, made right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a wrath bearer, propitiation as a wrath bearer by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, or you could say his, his uh, justice, whatever you want to say, to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's talking about people like Moses, people before Jesus, who they didn't know Jesus' name, they didn't know exactly what it would look like, but they were trusting in God's provision of salvation, God's provision of mercy, God's provision of this wrath bearer. It says that there. Uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, that's right here, right now, for you and I, that he might be just and the justifier, justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what that means is, God does by no means clear the guilty. He does not sweep sin under the rug. God remains perfectly, gloriously, beautifully just, that he might be just and at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is, that he might show mercy and grace. That he might bestow steadfast love on those who come to him for mercy. This is the glory of God put on display. There is no other aspect of the Bible or anything else, other, any other proclamation or vision of God that more clearly displays, more brightly shines the glory of God than the gospel because all of God's glorious attributes are on display. His power is on display as he coordinates all of these world events to culminate in the death of his son 
And he, that son, by the way, is put to death and risen from the dead in power. So God's power is on display. But, but please hear me and don't, don't miss this. God's justice was on display at the cross in addition to his mercy. Perfectly. Because on the cross, the justice, the wrath, the punishment that we deserve for our sins was poured out on Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus exclaimed from the cross. He had the wrath of God poured out on him. God's justice is on display. But we know that time of suffering for Christ, it ended and, and he, he, he gave up his spirit. Father, um, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is laid in the grave and three days later he rises to glory. And now we hear his words even more clearly ring in our minds. Uh, you can just think John 3.16. If you just want something for your mind that you probably know. Jesus spoke those words, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the justice and glory of God. Jesus took the perishing that we deserve, the eternal perishing, so that we sinners as we are might have eternal life but it is only those who believe in him if moses had turned tail and run when he heard the name of god both his mercy and his justice things would not have gone well for moses it would have it would have meant their destruction to run away from god god is glorious and the only logical the only right thing to do is when you see a god this just but also this merciful is to run to him, to receive the mercy that he purchased on the cross in Christ Jesus. And, and friends, I just want to remind you Christians, I'm, I'm talking to you Christians who have already trusted in this Christ, keep filling up that glory tank in your heart. I don't know about you, but I still struggle with sin. Satan still tempts me, this world still pressures me, my flesh still wants to do the wrong thing. I desperately need to see the all-surpassing, sin-surpassing glory of God each and every day. You will see it in God's word. You will see God's glory. You will see his gospel over and over in his word. And it will change you. It will transform you. It will bring you into his image. You will not be a strong, hope-filled, joy-filled Honestly, God glorifying Christian without continually coming to his word and saying, God, please show me your glory. It will not happen, Christian. But non-Christian, you who have said, I, I don't know about this God thing. I, I don't know about this Jesus thing. He kind of doesn't sound great to me, so I'll just keep him at arm's length. I, I just want to tell you now, I, I would just encourage you, non-Christian, to pray truly from the heart, please Show me your glory, God. If you're real, God, show me your glory. Wherever you're at on that, God, show me your glory. Because here is why. You right now, non-Christian, are, are in entire bondage. You are a slave to sin. And the only thing that will make you want to turn away from, from that devotion to sin is to see the surpassing glory of God. It's the only way it will happen. The only way it will truly happen is to see the surpassing glory of God. And you say, okay, I turn from my sin, but where do I turn? There's this God of justice. 
If you're praying, God, please show me your glory, guess where he's going to point you? He's going to point you right to the gospel of Jesus Christ where your sins are paid for. Yes, justice for your sin is poured out, but you receive mercy. And this is the glory, the beautiful glory put on display. Don't feel bad about receiving the glory of God in the gospel, about receiving this mercy and justice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, non-Christian, I urge you, search your heart. Say, something's going to happen one day when I die. Something is going to happen. I don't know exactly what, but God, if you're out there, please show me your glory. And I would encourage you even to pick up a Bible. You got apps, go online. You can find it even if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible. Ask God to show you his glory, and he will. And you can invite others in. Come talk to me. I would love to show you God's glory in his word, because I know it will point you to his goodness, his beauty in the gospel that changes, that, that saves us and changes us, and changes literally everything about us to the glory of God, to the praise of God. Let's pray. Father God, even what we've done this morning studying this text, we have barely scratched the surface of the glory that you want to shine in our hearts. We've had this wonderful opportunity for 30 or so minutes to to soak in who you are, the goodness of all that you are and all that you do. But God, we want more. Like Moses, we don't want to be satisfied with comfort, with temporal blessings. God, we want you. We want to see you. We want to behold you. We want to be astounded by you. And we want to be changed by you. Oh God, teach us to pray that you would show us your glory. Teach us to search for your glory in your word as for precious treasures and gold and silver and all riches. God, help us to search for your glory. And God, we pray that you would reveal it. You are sovereign. You are in control of this. So we do come humbly before you and ask that you would show us your glory. Give us the resolve to look, trusting that you will show us an answer to our prayer. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.